It is good to see you. It is uh, coming in this morning. I enjoyed the crispness of the fall. Uh, That is something that uh, we normally get with a lot of cloud cover and darkness. Uh, But this year it was great to see the sun shining off of the uh, frost and just enjoying that time uh, driving into church this morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the passage that uh, we had uh, read already this morning, Psalm 100, as we give thanks to the Lord our Maker. Uh, That is our title this morning, and it is a call. It is a call for obedience and to us to respond. As you're turning there, One commentator wrote this on this psalm. He said, Praise is the evidence of a living faith because it reveals how well people know the Lord and how loyal they are to Him. What an important distinction for us as we begin to dig into Psalm 100, a psalm that we well know. Many many songs, hymns, and psalms have been written off of this Psalm 100. And it reminded me as I was studying this week uh, for this morning, it reminded me of a group of Filipinos, those who had moved to the United States from the Philippines, who in Chicagoland had started uh, a financial assistance. This uh, business that they had started was designed specifically to help other Filipinos move from the Philippines to the United States. For them, it was a, a transition from the have-nots to the haves. When they were in the Philippines, they had next to nothing, enough food and maybe a few articles of clothing, a a ranshackled house. They come to the United States and suddenly wealth is everywhere. And as those who come out of poverty into uh, significant sources of income, they would get themselves into trouble. And they would begin to become materialistic, and they would seek more and more possessions, and they would lose the heart of thanksgiving. And those were the stated reasons. Every thanksgiving, I would speak for this business as they would host a thanksgiving party, and then they would host a Christmas party, and they would ask me to speak at those events to celebrate what God had done, because this was part of their business model, that they would refuse to praise themselves, but instead they wanted to praise God. And so you had the handful of business owners who would gather together and just a handful of them knew Christ as Savior and the rest did not. The rest were religious, but they were not believers. And so those who were believers insisted that I would share the gospel at those events. And what a special time it was for a pastor to come into a business Thanksgiving meal to celebrate with the company that their sole purpose was to cause those who had come from the have-nots into the haves to give thanks in all seasons. What a joy it was and something that we tend to lose. We tend to be those who give thanksgiving on our terms. We celebrate it during this week, and maybe this month you may have posted on your social media all the reasons that you're thankful for, and those are wonderful practices. But what about the other 11 months? How should we worship the Lord in thanksgiving? That is where the psalmist takes us. Missionary John Livingstone, who lived in the 1600s, helps us to realize the significance of thanksgiving as it relates to corporate praise, and he says this, Alas, for that capital crime of the Lord's people, 
the barrenness of thanksgiving and praise. Called it a capital crime. He continues, he says, Oh, how fully I am persuaded that a line of praise is worth a page of prayer. An hour of praise is worth a day of fasting and mourning. Not that those things are unimportant, but how much more important it is to praise our God. And that is where we spend our morning as we focus on this truth. We are to praise the Lord with thanksgiving because we are his people. Not because things are going well, not because things are not going well, but because of who God is, we praise him. And that's the drive of Psalm 100. I'm going to spend some time now as we enter into Psalm 100, going to the Lord in prayer. So I encourage you to do that with me as we begin this psalm. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to dig in to a theme that we have a holiday for, but we're often overlooking that holiday for the sales that come the next day. Lord, we are a people who are easily consumed by the materialism that is around us. We see trials and tribulations, and we may praise you as we learn lessons from those, and then we quickly again forget, or we're prone to forget. And we begin to do things in our own power once again. And then we heap accolades to ourselves. Lord, I pray that this morning we would be challenged by Psalm 100, this psalm, this really, it is truly a call to worship. May we be those who are driven to worship because we are those who are your creation and you are God. May we glorify you in those truths regardless of circumstances. We praise you that giving thanks and giving praise is not circumstantial based upon the things that we are going through, but rather it is that expression of worship and awe and praise in all seasons. So Lord, we ask that you would Give us understanding and faithful hearts as we dig into your word. We praise you for the attributes of God that are displayed here. May we be thoroughly consumed, and may you receive the glory and the honor that is due. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak and give us hearts and mouths and hands willing to give thanksgiving and praise, that you alone would be exalted in it. Christ, and it is in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. As we began this morning, we jump straight in, and your outline is a bit different because it is somewhat redundant in the order of the outline. We have first the serve the Lord with gladness. There is a call to worship and then an instruction to worship, and that is the entire psalm. The psalm is broken into two. It's just a division. And as we dig through it, we have the call to praise and the reason to praise. So your outline in your bulletin just gives you all of that. I want you to fill in some information, though, between those two sections. We recognize how important this psalm is because Psalm 100 comes in the middle of a chorus of songs that were to be sung as you were entering into the temple, if you were of Israel, entering into the temple and praising the Lord. This was that which wasn't consumed around November and Thanksgiving, of course. This was a year-round call for all worshipers to come into the house of the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. And so this was a reminder. It was a psalm that would be sung on the way in and all the way through into the gates of the temple as joyful noises were to ring out. 
And so as we recognize this, we understand the simplicity of it. It was that which was to be learned, it was to be understood, and it was to be sung. It was to be the songs that would continue to linger as you were on your caravan back to your cities after having been in the temple. It was a year or weeks later that you would remember it and continue to sing because of the simplicity of it and the great truth that therein lies. And so the psalmist drives us into a deeper understanding of what it means to worship and to praise. And he gives a strict call to praise. We are to serve the Lord with gladness, and here's the reasons why. Verse 1, the scripture says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The first two verses of this call to worship begin with emphasizing imperatives. These are commands. These are not suggestions. On your way into the morning service, as you're driving your way here, what is your heart doing? That's really where the psalmist is speaking. The psalmist is saying there's three clear imperatives, commands, that you and I must do. And specifically, remember, he's writing to those of Israel. But the truths and the practice of worship are still relevant for us today. And so we understand them by digging in, and Paul, or rather the psalmist says that we are to be those who are worshiping by making a joyful noise, Some of your translations may say shouting, and we are to serve, and we are to enter or come. Those are the three instructions, the imperatives, the word for make a joyful noise. Some of us have taken and say, well, this is is how I sing. I sing with a joyful noise. I don't sing well, so I sing with a joyful noise. Uh, One of the challenges of using it for that is when you sing with a joyful noise, and I used to say this all the time, I still do to some extent in some songs, I sing with a joyful noise. I I have uh, not great rhythm. I kind of have white guy's rhythm. (laughs) You know, it's not really there. Um, It's kind of awkward and clumsy. I kind of have that kind of rhythm. And and my my voice isn't great. I don't have a great range. I don't understand how to stretch that range out. And so I would be one who who would say, I sing to make a joyful noise. But when we do that, we typically sing quiet right? If you're one who sings to make a joyful noise, you sing subdued, letting others around you carry the, the tone, carry the song. But that is not really what this word means. This word means shout. I come into the presence of the Lord making a joyful shout. That is how the Israelites were to enter into the temple. They were to enter in great joy, joyful shouting, joyful noise to the Lord. And so when we typically use it, we typically accompany it with a subdued language, but the psalmist is saying, we are to come into the house of the Lord, we are to spend time with the family of God, shouting and praising, serving and entering. That is what we are to be doing. When worshipers of God would gather for worship, it was accompanied by shouts of joy filled with praise and adoration of the Lord. These weren't shouts of joy to see who you are. These were shouts of joy to point to who he is, to recognize who God is, and in adoration, praise the Lord. The psalmist commands all the earth 
to engage in that worship. Do you notice that in verse 1? He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Every single creature created by God is to make a shout, a joyful shout of adoration to the Lord. One of the things that we kind of lose during the winter months here in Michigan is the sounds of the birds early in the morning shouting adorations to the Lord. This morning I stepped out and I heard uh, the, probably the last of some of those birds uh, singing and proclaiming. It was a reminder to me that all the earth is commanded to praise the Lord. All the earth is commanded to praise the Lord. It's also fascinating that one day every creature, every created being, every human being will bow the knee in worship and adoration. Every knee will bow, Paul says to the Philippian church, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue will confess. The psalmist's command here in Psalm 100 is to do that joyfully now, to worship the Lord in joyful shouting today. This command recognizes who the object of praise really is. When we celebrate Thanksgiving, we say, well, I'm thankful for, which is a great statement. I'm thankful for fill in the blank. Thankful for health. I'm thankful for family. I'm thankful for resources. I'm thankful for my pets. Whatever you're thankful for. But the question is, who are you thankful to? Let us not neglect to recognize who we praise. Because if you're thankful for certain things, you have a lot of control and you can manipulate that and you can force that to be that which is focused to you instead of to the one who actually gave it to you. And so every creature is to recognize who the object of praise and thanksgiving is. The shouts of joy affirm that the creator He is God and He is sovereign. And He's sovereign over all things, all the earth. Notice again, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Submit to the sovereign will and direction of God and praise Him. The second word that the psalmist uses here in verse 2 is that we are to serve the Lord. And again, he's speaking to all the earth. This is all the earth is to serve the Lord with gladness. And this word serve kind of takes a central and important place in these three. It is a general word of instruction for working when it is used in other places. But it takes on the connotation in this context of spiritual service. You and I who are followers of God should especially be those who emulate serving the Lord when we gather together. When we worship the Lord in thanksgiving, we ought to be servants of the Lord in thanksgiving. And that is what this word means. It means full participation in the worship of the sovereign God over all the earth. That means that you can't hold back when you sing. When you proclaim the excellencies of God, it is not about your likes or dislikes. It's not about your ambitions. It's not about your selfishness. It's about your proclaiming the excellencies of the one that you serve. 
And that is what the psalmist is saying when he's saying you are to serve. It's not just in song, it's in all aspects of service. When you're out fellowshipping together after the service or before the service and someone says, I have a a deep prayer request, and you say, well, I'll leave that to someone else to pray with them. That's not full service. That's not engaged in service. When you see a need and you don't meet it, that's not full service. We are to be those who are serving one another as we serve the Lord, and this is to be done with gladness. And it's interesting, as the psalmist says here, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. This phrase requires a whole person. It doesn't require part, it requires a full person. In fact, as the psalmist has used it, and different psalmists perhaps, we're not exactly sure who wrote Psalm 100. It may have been David. It was most likely pre-exile, and so it could have been David, and it could have been others who wrote it as well. But we recognize that when the psalmist says that you are to serve with gladness, it requires the full person's engagement. And so in Psalm 19, verse 8, it speaks of serving with the heart. In Psalm 86, 4, it refers to serving with the soul. Proverbs, Solomon would get on it as well, and he would use this term in Proverbs 15, 30, speaking of serving the Lord with your eyes. Serving with gladness requires the whole being, the whole part of the follower of God, and to do it with gladness means every element is serving joyfully and willingly in all needs that arise. This would be unique for those entering into the temple because they're not the church. Israel's not the church. We're going to talk about that tonight in the evening message. Israel and the church are very distinct, very different. And so to tell the Israelites as they come in to serve, they, they may have said, well, we have the Levites for that. We have, we have the priests who serve us when we come here. The psalmist is reminding them that the heart of worship, the heart of thanksgiving and praise is a heart that serves the Lord. Let us be those who serve the Lord. It requires also that worshiping the Lord with gladness requires more than a passive participation. It is work. To serve the Lord with gladness is work, spiritual work, that engages every fiber of our beings. So let us not be passive when we gather together either. The third imperative is to come or to enter, to come in or enter. When we come into the presence of the Lord in worship, we are to come with joyful singing. Notice again, he says, come into his presence with singing. Come into his presence with singing. We are to enter in with joy. We are to serve with gladness. And we are to enter in with singing. When we come together in the body of believers, especially, we must be those who sing well. Who lead the charge. Coming into the presence of the Lord for worship should be characterized by genuine celebrations of great joy. We should be joyful in coming in, which requires that we remove the selfish ambitions and earthly pursuits. It requires that we shake off those things that have hindered us from true worship. It requires that when we gather in with a body of believers, we are those who openly and joyfully celebrate who God is. And that means taking the eyes off of who you are. You cannot truly give thanks if you're looking at what you have provided or what you can do 
or the powers that you possess. That is not thanks. The psalmist continues in this hymn, as it were, and it's laid out as a hymn. We're going to see that more and more as it develops. But we also continue into this repetition then, and the first part of the repetition is the reason to praise, and we find this in verse 3, says this. This is the reason. We've been alluding to it all along, but here it is. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The focus and the reason for the three instructions that we are to follow to make a joyful noise to serve the lord and to come into the presence with sing come into his presence with singing the reason we do that is spelled out in verse 3 it's given to us here in the musical format the psalmist calls worshipers to know who god is this is absolutely critical to our worship and to our thanksgiving you must know who you praise You know you. The question is, do you know him? Do you know who God is? This must be the heart of worship music. It must be the pulse of every sound of worship music. To know that the Lord is God. The word know invites us to learn more about who he is. It is a a statement that reminds us that we are to not only know who he is, but to do something about it. It is confessional, as it were, to diminish as he grows. This is what uh, John the Baptist does when he speaks of the ministry of Christ to come after. He says that he must diminish while Christ increases. That must be the tone of every song that we sing. It must be the tone of every worship and every experience of thanksgiving that we provide. To know is to learn more about who God is. And it is to do so with a confessional tone in knowing that not only, not only who God is, but what God does. And it carries with it this grand sense, this great sense of awe of God as we begin to minimize ourselves and maximize who he is, and we can't maximize him enough. It's physically and emotionally and spiritually impossible for you to fully comprehend who God is. We cannot maximize him enough, but we can certainly lift ourselves into the way so that it blurs our view. This morning I had a thin coat of ice on my windshield, and we scraped off the windshield and we drove all the way here, and uh, I, I live just just far enough away that by the time you get to about uh, just into the towns here, uh, just into the houses here, just before you start cresting the hill, just uh, where the 35 mile an hour sign is, that my car finally warms up. And you're like, oh, the seats are warm and the car is starting to warm, just time to shut it down. And we shut the car off and I start to back into my spot and there's a thin coat of ice on the mirrors that hadn't had a chance to defrost. And so I'm backing in, and don't look at my backup job. Uh, when you go leave today, don't go, where's pastor's car? I want to see how he backed in. I backed in there, and I'm crooked in the lines, and I hate being crooked in the lines. So I, I pulled out and corrected. I'm crooked the other way now. 
because there's a thin layer. It's, it's blurring my view as I'm backing up, and I, I, I do not use, I do not like backup cameras. Uh, they are an invention for lazy people, in my estimation. So, so I use my mirrors. As I'm backing in, I can't get it straight. It's still not straight. Don't go look at it. Or if you do, laugh about it. But I'm still not straight because there was a blur, a film on my mirrors that blurred what I could see. Seriously, as we turn and we look now into what your presence in the way of worship does, is it blurs the view of who God is. When we give any accolades to ourself, we blur the mirror. Instead of looking truly at who God is, we begin to focus on who we are without even knowing it. Because the lines have been blurred. There are three things that the psalmist says, and again, we have this series of three. We have three responses. We are to make a joyful noise. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. We are to come into his presence with singing. Those three are followed up with three reasons why we are to do those things. First, we are to know that he is God. That is what we find here in verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. And we are to know that since he is God and that he made all people, we are accountable to him. That's the second thing that we are to do or to understand. And third, that as his people, we have a privileged position. And specifically, he's referring to Israel, but all of those who are followers of God. And so there's a transition coming. That transition is moving from all of the earth to those who are followers of God. And we're going to transition to the second half of the psalm in just a moment where that takes place. But the psalmist is preparing us for that. First, he says that we are to know that he, that the Lord, is God. This is sufficient reason enough, if we stopped here, that we should fall on our faces in thanksgiving and praise, because the Lord, he is God. People may think they are independent of the Lord, but they are not. He alone is God. This is why the psalmist begins by saying all of the earth is to make a joyful noise before the Lord. All of the earth is to acclaim who God is. And those who follow the Lord must be those who lead the charge. This truth alone, if there was nothing else to follow, the fact that the Lord, He is God, is reason why everything else should be second. And He should be first. Why we should praise and give thanks to Him And to him alone. But the psalmist continues. The second statement is that it is he who made us and we are his. It is he who made us and we are his. If all people, can you imagine the change that would take place in society if all people recognize that the creator is our creator and that he is God? Think of all the rampant sin, the confusion of gender, the confusion of sexuality, the confusion of uh, relationships, broken relationships, sinful relationships, the confusion of money and wealth and the purposes of that. If the world would only understand that the Creator is God and that He made you, 
Can you imagine the difference in our world today? This one simple truth that He is the Creator and that He made you and He made me. Beloved, that is reason for praise. If all people would focus on this truth, they would be filled with the wonder and awe of the Creator God. If believers focus on this truth, we will be captivated as well in the awe and wonder that we belong to our Creator and joyfully are accountable to Him. There is one that you will give an account to, and He was the one who breathed life into Adam and took a rib from Adam's side and made Eve. And He is the one that forms you in your mother's womb. He's the one who assigns you your gender. He's the one who knows you before you knew yourself, and He knows you more intimately than you could ever know yourself. And you, regardless of your belief, regardless of the world system that you come from, are accountable to Him. And as Paul says in Philippians, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, the psalmist transitions a bit for us. This is that bridge in the music, as it were. There's a verse here. He says that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And this is a phrase referring to the people of Israel, but it is also a phrase that is used of us in the New Testament that we are the sheep as well, and we are His. We are different. Israel and the church are different, as we will see again, as I said earlier, we'll see this evening. But we also join in with the people of Israel proclaiming that we belong to the Creator God. Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Savior are those who exclaim that we are His and that not only are we accountable, we are joyfully accountable. And we are joyfully in the presence of the God who made us, who knows us, and who calls us to himself. Beloved, have you ever stopped to just revel in the wonder of verse 3? He is God. He is creator. And he loved you so much that he would send his only son to die for you. To rise again. To give you victory over sin and death so that he may be with you in eternity. You and I will spend the rest of eternity marveling at this one verse. Should it not be captivated in our thanksgiving today when with finite imaginations we are only able to see a portion and not all of it? Should it not captivate us? Should it not drive our worship and our praise? And the answer to that is indeed, yes, it should. And that's where the psalmist is about to go. The first half of the psalm teaches us that when Faithful people fully know and acknowledge that Yahweh is God, that he made them and that he is their shepherd. Their response, our response, will be jubilant praise. We should respond to what we've learned in the first three verses of Psalm 100. But we continue on 
responding all the more with the great truths that we are to worship the Lord with thanksgiving. This is where the psalmist goes. He says, all of this is great truth. Now what do we do with it as we continue to praise the Lord? And there is again this call to worship as there was in the first stanza. In the first stanza, we were called to worship. We were called to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We were called to serve the Lord with gladness. We were called to come into his presence with singing. And now in verse 4, there's another call. And this call begins in the same way, although English English translations may have changed that first word. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. This word for enter is the same word that we read earlier in come, make a joy, and come into his presence with singing. So we have a reiteration of the command. Enter into his presence with singing. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I remember uh, in the 90s, they're probably written in the 80s, uh, this song that was focused just on this one verse itself, that we were enter, to enter into his courts with praise. What a gentle and incredible reminder for you and I that in response to verse 3, there is something that should change in us in our worship. It is different. It is not based upon tastes. It is not based upon styles. It's not based upon comfort. In fact, it is not circumstantial at all. It's not based on circumstances. It's based on the very character and attributes of God. Our hearts should be driven to thanksgiving. You could be going through extremely difficult circumstances right now, and I don't know it. But you are called to focus attention on the great creator God who knows you, who made you, who owns you. And that gives us a sense of identity, comfort, and rest in the mercies of God. And so we fall in thanksgiving. The first half of the psalm called all the earth to make a joyful noise, to serve and to come into the presence of the Lord. The second half calls worshipers to enter, give thanks, and to praise. Again, we have the three. We are to enter, give thanks, and praise. The word for enter is the same as it was in the first half. And here, the people who are called to communal worship are those who are believers, who are followers of the one true God. We are called to worship. And the imagery is, again, of the temple. And in, verse, in the first part of the psalm, in, in verse 3, or rather verse 2, we are to come into his presence. That is, you are to come near to the temple. Now he says, enter his courts. Enter his courts. Now we're moving further inside of the temple. And moving further inside the temple, we are inside the entrance of the sanctuary where worship would take place. And the psalmist moves from commanding the earth to commanding the followers of God. We are to come before the Lord into his presence with thanksgiving. That is the attitude that we fall before our Savior in. When we come in on a Sunday morning in May, may it be the way that we come in in a Sunday morning in November with thanksgiving and an attitude of praise, exalting the Lord because he has given us breath, he's given us life, he's given us purpose, he's given us an identity, and he's giving us his Savior. 
Let us exalt him for those reasons. We are to come before the Lord with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is not maybe what we think. We think of thanksgiving and we think of it in the Western traditional sense. Uh, you know, the, the turkey, the blessings, the, all of that. That's kind of how we think of thanksgiving. The football, all of those things. That's how we think of thanksgiving. And it has tainted our understanding, even if just by a little bit. What thanksgiving actually means is acknowledgement. Acknowledging who has provided for you. So when the psalmist says thanksgiving, he's saying, focus entirely on the one who has provided you all of the reasons for acknowledging him. Focus on him. And specifically to do so publicly. That's why it's important that we have a Thanksgiving Eve service for us to acknowledge publicly what God has done and who God is. Thanksgiving then bursts out, it lives out in praise. You cannot contain Thanksgiving without praise if it's done appropriately. You can contain the Thanksgiving that we kind of do. I remember as a teenager it was a task. This was not a normal thing for our family that we would write down reasons that we're thankful for. And it was kind of subjected. It was one of those things that homeschool families do to keep their kids busy during the fall season. And like, okay, so all of the kids have to write down reasons for giving thanks. And you're all going to share that at the Thanksgiving meal. And all I could think of is, I'm hungry. I want to eat. I don't want to hear all of this until after when this is one of the reasons that I give thanks. <laughs> it's a full stomach. That was my attitude as a teenager. And I, frankly, didn't want to speak. I didn't want to stand in front of crowds, oddly enough. I didn't want to share anything to the 20 family members who were gathered. And my heart was in the wrong place. And it's important that we tweak that in us as we... Think of what thanksgiving really means. Acknowledging who God is and what God has done and how that has been displayed to us. That's very different. It's not about what I have accomplished this year. I'm thankful that I did such and such. No, we thank God for doing what you and I could not and would not do. That is thanksgiving. And it's done in public. The public thanksgiving and subsequent praise is based on the nature of God revealed in his works. Your thanksgiving celebrations should be those focused on God and God alone. Your praise, the songs that we sing, should be based on God and God alone. When we gather for public worship, we should gather for purposes of giving public thanks for the work that God is doing and I trust that you are enjoying those relationships, whether that be in small groups or in one-on-one -on -one opportunities or in the fellowship, that you are enjoying opportunities to say, you won't believe what God has done this week. We are quick to give prayer requests for our needs. Are we quick to give praises back? Let us be found giving praises back. Our focus must be on the Lord. And all praise must be devoid of self-promotion in light of his sovereignty, his goodness, and his mercy to us.
Our praise is motivated by a heart of thanksgiving and acknowledging the work of God, which is demonstrating His mercy to us who are unworthy to receive it. And again, the psalmist, in keeping in the hymnotic form, moves into verse 5 with a reason to praise. Reason to praise. Verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Our thanksgiving and praise is summed up again in keeping that hymnotic form in three quick statements. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And He is faithful to all generations. Let our praise, let our thanksgiving contain those three. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And He is faithful to all generations. We... We look at the first one, which is the Lord is good. Typically good in the Bible means uh, people or things that promote or enhance or preserve life. We notice when the Lord finishes creation, he looks at all that he had created and he says that it is uh, each day that it is good and then at the end that it is very good. We see good as that which is a quality of uh, those who promote or enhance or preserve life. And that is maintained throughout the pages of both the Old and the New Testament. God calls everything that he made in creation before sin good. One author writes this, God is the source of all that makes life enjoyable and worthwhile. And so when we reflect on the goodness of God, we're reflecting on the preservation of life, both life here in this sin-stained world, but more importantly, eternal life. That He is the perfecter of our salvation, the provider of our eternal life. We recognize that He is the one who promotes life and preserves, enhances. So when we reflect on the goodness of God, we reflect on all of the provisions that are necessary that make up life. The breath we breathe, the water we drink, the food we consume. We recognize that this moves into the spiritual realm as well because we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the very word of God. Let us celebrate in our Thanksgiving services the goodness of of God. The goodness of God that reflects more than just, yeah, I was treated well this year. No, you have breath to breathe, a voice to speak. Let us celebrate the goodness of God. We are also to celebrate that his love endures forever. This is a, an important phrase. The idea conveyed here is the loyal love of God. When you're not loyal, God is loyal. He is faithful. The phrase is used four more times in the next 36 Psalms. In fact, it's going to be used as the lead-off to four Psalms from here to the end of the book. 
In fact, it's used in Psalm 106, verse 1, Psalm 107, verse 1, and Psalm 118, verse 1, and Psalm 136, verse 1, as this truth that the love, the steadfast love, endure, that his steadfast love endures forever is a repeated and constant theme throughout the rest of these psalms of praise. His steadfast love endures forever. In expressing praise for the love of God, we celebrate, we ought to celebrate, this incredible attribute of our God. When you wane, he does not. When you are weak, he is not. When your love is a little bit selfish, his is not. This love of God cuts through the sinful crust of this sin-stained world and was demonstrated in the provision of Christ for you and I. When we think of the loyal love of God, when we were yet enemies, I was recently listening to a preacher preach on the uh, coming to Christ as Savior, and there was this idea that he was conveying that we pursued Christ. Scripture says you and I were enemies of the cross of Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So both the Old Testament, Isaiah, and in Romans, in the New Testament, we are told that you and I were abjectly running from Christ. And in that condition, the loyal love of God stretched through eternity, through sin, and to you, through the blood of Christ. His love, His steadfast love, endures forever. It sustains us. This love that was demonstrated in Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, it sustains us with an enduring hope when everything else seems hopeless. And so when things are not going well, when things have been difficult, you and I can give thanks to the Lord who created us, who owns us, who sustains us, because his love endures forever. There may be days that you feel as if the love of God isn't there. Recently, a soccer star who was very anti the things of God was injured in her final game. Just four minutes into the game, she injures herself to the point she's not going to be able to play again. And her statement is, this is proof there is no God. My immediate thought was, this is proof there is a God. And he's drawn you to your knees. Beloved, it is in those moments when we feel as if the steadfast love of God has been removed that we have the opportunity to strip off the old and look into what God is doing even in those moments where life is tough. Life is clinging to a thread, not some twisted ankle on a soccer field. When we really ask the question, is God here? The answer is, his steadfast love endures forever. Let us give praise to him for that. Last one, the psalmist adds, he says that he is faithful to all generations. Sometimes in our materialistic, modernistic society, we forget that God has sustained his people throughout the generations. 
One of the great reasons I love to study church history and I love to teach church history is because there's always a remnant of those who are faithful to the Lord, no matter the circumstances. There literally can be saints burning as torches in Nero's gardens to light the way at night. And this love, the faithfulness of God endures for generations. Because they're still Christians. Where's Nero's gardens? Where's Nero? Where's the impacts of Nero? But they're still Christians. When Christians are persecuted for their faith, and they're tramped down and sought to be stamped out, they burgeon out someplace else. The faithfulness of God is to all generations. The praise and thanksgiving of the people of God include the reminder that God's plans will not fail by one generation or by another generation. No tyrant can remove it, despite the best efforts of some of the world's worst tyrants. No force can change it, and Satan and all of his minions can't thwart it, because the faithfulness of God endures to all generations. God's plans never fail. He keeps every promise, and he is completely dependable. We celebrate the opportunities that Thanksgiving provides by now expressing the opportunity of putting it into practice. This call to give thanks and to praise the Lord should be our beck and call every single Sunday that we gather together. It should be that which drives us and molds us and shapes us into becoming more and more like our Savior. Because as we practice Psalm 100, we begin to diminish ourselves. As we live out Psalm 100, even our sufferings begin to be diminished in light of His faithfulness from generation to generation. Therefore, let us be found fully and faithfully consecrating our hearts this Thanksgiving season. And that we would praise faithfully the Lord as you gather your families around the meal, as you spend time with loved ones and friends, wherever you happen to be, if that's just one or two or 20 or 40, as you gather around that meal, that moment that even secular society has set aside for us to give thanks, let us acknowledge the one that we praise. Let us not back off. Let us share the truth of the wonder that he is the Lord, that the Lord is God, and that he made us, and that he has demonstrated uh, to us his goodness and his mercy as he's called us his people, the sheep of his pasture. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we continue in song in just a few moments, we recognize that this is an opportunity for us to put into practice what we've just studied. Lord, this is an incredible psalm, one that would have been easily recognizable as the people of Israel came into the temple, that they would enter in, to the courts of praise or with praise. Lord, I pray that we would do the same and 
that while we are not the people of Israel, we recognize that the principles are still ours to practice. May you receive the glory and the honor that is due. May we be people who strip off the vestiges of self-promotion and self-enhancement and rather focus on you, glorifying and acknowledging humbly who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you would recall to each of our minds, verse 3, and that we would dwell here in just this one verse to understand with greater understanding, greater appreciation, greater knowledge to know you, to know what you have done, and to serve you as your people. Lord, the wonder of that transaction is too wonderful, too marvelous for us to comprehend. It is beyond our finite capacities and even the most intellectual of societies. And yet, all of us are called to marvel at its great truth. We know even the angelic realm looks deeply into these things and cannot fully comprehend why you would redeem the special creation that you called humanity. Lord, we praise you that this is our season where we are reminded of these truths. And I pray that we would not let it pass by today without fully engaging in the wonder and the awe and the magnificence of who you are and exalting you rightly and appropriately for your glory. And may your glory be exalted in our celebrations this week, in every meal, in every discussion, in every celebration of thanksgiving. May you be the one who is exalted and praised. Lord, we give you the honor and the glory that is due now. And as we continue in song, I pray that we would practice what we've preached, living it out as our voices unite together in corporate praise. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name, precious name, that we pray it. Amen.